If you have your Bible with you, would you please open to the book of Galatians chapter 6. And I would encourage you to keep a copy of God's Word open and easily accessible. Take a few notes this morning. While you're turning to Galatians chapter 6, a couple of housekeeping items. Um, One is a commercial about what comes next. So this is our last Sunday in Galatians. For the next six Sundays, we're going to do a quick little survey of wisdom literature. So we're going to be in Proverbs, we'll be in Ecclesiastes, we will be in Psalms, we will be in the book of Job. And it's going to be a great introduction to this genre of the Bible, wisdom literature. And I hope you will be with us every Sunday. It's going to be quite a different change in tone uh, from our time with Paul. And I'm excited about jumping into that next week. Second little thing I wanted to run by you. Last week I gave you a challenge to pray every day Galatians 6 to Lord, help me bear another's burdens that I might fulfill the law of Christ. Did you do that? I hope you did. Uh, You don't have to email me to make it official, but I did receive a sweet email this week uh, from a friend describing how she prayed that and the Lord gave her opportunity to do this thing. I'm always encouraged by those stories and uh, keep them close to my heart. Uh, And I hope you will pray that prayer on a regular basis, making it a normal part of your praying diet God, help me bear another's burdens today. I think that answer doesn't necessarily come in huge superhuman ways, but through ordinary, common relationships, day-to-day interactions, uh, God gives us opportunity. And so would you continue to pray that prayer, and let's see what the Lord does among us. Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 11 to the end of the book is where we're going to be today. Uh, The year was 1860. Abraham Lincoln was in a difficult race for the presidency and it was in the midst of this race that he received a letter from an 11 year old girl named Grace that may have just changed the tide of the presidential race. Grace had recently seen a picture of Lincoln and at that time he did not have his signature beard and so Grace wrote this long letter and a part of the letter read this Uh, to Lincoln she wrote I have got four brothers, and some of them will vote for you anyway, and if you let your whiskers grow, I will try to get the rest of them to vote for you. You would look a great deal better, for your face is so thin. All the ladies like whiskers, and they would tease their husbands to vote for you, and then you would be president. All the ladies like whiskers. That's, that's true with one notable exception, this is for sure. So Lincoln grew a beard and was elected president. I'm sure that's, there's a correlation there, that grace turned the tide of American history with her recommendation that Lincoln cover his skinny face with a beard. Um, and Lincoln responded to her letter, it's saved, and uh, in his characteristic humility and wit, he told her, I, th- I think I'll be okay without a beard, in so many words. Uh, but then he grew the beard, he won the presidency. Uh, after he was, won the presidency, he went on a tour of the U.S. by train, and Grace, later in life, told of meeting Lincoln while he was on this victory tour. He swung through Washington, D.C., and that's where she met him. Uh, she said, he climbed down with me on the edge of the station platform. Gracie, he said, look at my whiskers. I've been growing them for you. Then he kissed me, and I never saw him again. So Grace wrote a letter to an embattled candidate, and it made a huge difference. Galatians is similar. This is a letter written to embattled Christians 
who are in the midst of a crisis of faith. This crisis has been caused by false teachers who have essentially placed this question in the minds of these Galatian Christians, who really is God's child? Who really belongs to God? Paul told you it's by faith alone. No, here's what we know to be true. It's by faith in Jesus and by keeping the Mosaic law. Cut your flesh, obey these rules, and you will really be God's child. It's in that crisis that Paul has sat down and written this letter and sends it uh, on a circuit to the churches in Galatia. This letter is not written like a crock pot put on low to simmer a long time. This letter lands like a nuclear bomb and it eradicates in a brilliant flash false gospels so that the true gospel can be held and preserved in the hearts of these Galatian Christians who are having a crisis of faith. When they received this letter, they didn't go through it methodically over 16 Sundays like we have. They read it in one sitting. They gathered the church together, those who were holding to the faith and those who were considering leaving the faith. It is a crisis moment. Churches divided at war against one another. And they gather to hear the letter from Paul. And in that one moment, this letter is meant to make an impact. It's meant to change people's minds, to hold them to Christ, to cast out the opponents of the gospel. In my imagination, I I view this scene, this is not biblical, of course, it's just my imagination, so feel free to chuck it. But I, I just, I see the church gathered together, and in that gathering, you have people who are pro paul people who are pro-Judaizer. You maybe have Judaizers themselves who have been preaching this false gospel. And they hear Paul's robust and unfettered defense of faith alone in Jesus Christ as the way of our justification. And at the close of the letter, the part that we read today, when it's all said and done, leaders of that congregation rise up. And they usher out the Judaizers. And they turn their church in praise to Jesus Christ For the salvation they have through faith alone in him. This letter is for Christians in crisis. When we study these final words, we are to get up and go out of this room with renewed strength and confidence in Jesus Christ. This is not some sweet little pat on the back. This is Paul at his most effective saying, Christian, Christ is holds you. He is with you. He is for you. And faith in him is enough to change everything. So this meets you in your crisis, in your brokenness, in your sorrow. You're at DEFCON 1 in your spirituality today. This is the letter for you. And the way Paul ends this letter is by securing us in our identity in Christ. The big question has been, who really is a child of God, Paul settles it once and for all. My purpose in preaching this passage is to anchor you in your identity in Christ, that you would never doubt who you belong to, who holds you, who your heavenly father is, and how he is your heavenly father. I want to show you in this closing passage three defining characteristics of God's people. So follow along with me as I read Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 11. Paul writes, 
Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. May peace come to all those who follow this standard and mercy even to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let me show you three defining characteristics of God's people in this passage. How do I know I belong to God? First of all, Paul tells us that God's people persevere in faith. How do I know I'm one of God's people? Because you persevere in your faith in Jesus Christ despite every obstacle, every challenge. Uh, I love the little personal touches Paul gives to this letter. Um, it's very human. Uh, that's not to take away from the divine inspiration of it. We just get a lot of Paul's personality in Galatians. Verse 11 uh, in particular, look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. The normal method by which Paul wrote his letters, it, it was not him alone sitting down and writing. He would dictate the letters to a scribe a secretary, the technical term is an amanuensis. So Paul would speak the letter, the, the scribe would write out what Paul says. And commonly, at the end of Paul's letters, he'll take the quill and he'll sign his name. He'll give some final greeting in his own hand just to add to the authority, or the, yeah, the authority and the genuineness of this letter. Well, here, he jumps in early. And I love verse 11. Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting, he takes the quill and he John Hancocks the whole end of this letter. It's all caps, like an email from your weird uncle. That's what Paul does right here in this moment. He wants to make sure we, the readers, understand the importance, the weight of this. Normally we get to the end of the letter in our chronological Bible reading and we just sort of plow through it and go on to Ephesians. But not here, you, you have to pump the brakes and soak in what Paul says to us with his own hand. He closes the letter with one more shot at his opponents, the Judaizers, who insist that the Mosaic law is necessary to be truly justified by God. What's their motivation? That's what Paul exposes here in verse 12. Here's why these people have come into the Galatian region and why they have come with this false gospel and they're trying to woo people to their way of believing. Their motivation, verse 12, those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So they, their motivation is twofold. One, they, they want to make a good impression in the flesh. They, they want to win the applause of like-minded people. Second, they want to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Their supposed commitment to holiness is motivated not by the glorification of God, but by the glorification of themselves. They want a good reputation. They don't want to face difficulties for their allegiance to Christ. 
And so they capitulate to the powers that will do them well. Their selfish motivation undermines the supposed sincerity of their Christless message. Think about this. If it's true that by denying Christ, the Galatian, excuse me, the Judaizers get a good reputation and they avoid persecution, what do the Galatians who claim Christ receive? Bad reputation? Intense persecution? Very likely. Not a great sales pitch. But it's true. And Paul's concern here is not with just giving a fluffy way forward for the Galatians, but helping them understand that in the midst of persecution, and if it costs you your reputation in your name, Christ is worth it. Faith perseveres. That's how I know I'm God's child. That's how I know I belong to him. I put my faith in him, and he holds me all the way through, and I cling to him. It's no different for Christians today than it was for the Galatians. You face absurd pressure on a regular basis to step away from the pure and powerful faith in Jesus Christ. You face pressure from religious voices who will tell you that true Christians believe what they believe and hate what and who they hate. If you check all the marks on their list, then you are truly a child of God. That legalism, that fundamentalism is demonic and wicked and anti-gospel. You face pressure from the world outside the church that tells you you're on the wrong side of history. You face pressure from within yourselves, the voice of the tempter, telling you you're not good enough to be truly saved, so you should just give up. But Christ is your defense. We just sang this. Christ is your defense. He is your shield, whether the enemy accuses you or the world reviles you. We've learned in our study of Galatians the same thing we learned in our study of the book of Daniel, that God's people outlast the raging of nations and every threat of persecution. So what do you have to fear? What enemy will you face that is greater than your God? What crisis will you be swallowed by that God cannot rescue you out of? There is not one. And that doesn't mean it's not hard. That doesn't mean you don't face gut-wrenching days. Of course we do. But we have Christ. And I have to believe that the one who died and rose again and is coming again will get me through this day and the days to come. I have to believe that there's a day more glorious and eternal where he himself wipes every tear from the eye. He doesn't hand you a tissue with his thumb on your cheek. He wipes the tear away have to believe that. i got to persevere in that. No matter the cost, no matter the challenge, God's people persevere by faith in Jesus Christ. Second distinct characteristic, defining characteristic of God's people, God's people live for what matters most. God's people live for what matters most. Verse 14, Paul says, As for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What were the Judaizers boasting in? They were doing some boasting. If you look back at verse 13, we're told that the Judaizers, they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. It's as if they would say, hey, look what we've accomplished. Hooray, team Judaizer. More converts for the Mosaic law. 
cut their flesh, going to keep some of these rules. They won't keep all of them perfectly. We're not worried about that. They're going to keep a few, and that's good enough. So chalk one up for us. Hooray, Torah. Hooray, us. It's all good. But that's not how Paul boasts. That's not what he thinks about boasting in. Paul says he will only boast in the cross of Christ. The death of Christ on the cross that, should, that the world thinks should be shame and embarrassment and humiliation. Instead, this is the source of Paul's boasting. To boast in it means to ascribe glory to it or to make much of it. And why? Why is the cross so boastworthy? It's the place where our sin is removed. The cross is where God's wrath against our sin is satisfied. The cross is where the sinless Son of God died your death. The cross is where sin and death are defeated with finality. The cross is where the work of salvation is finished. The cross is the place where the promise of God to Abraham becomes a reality to you. The cross prepares the way for the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. The cross shows you how to love your wife, how to love your husband. The cross inspires you to worship the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of mankind. The cross assures us that our residence is in a distant country. Now many people choose not to boast in the cross. You can be silent about it. You can be embarrassed by it. You can live as if it has no power or benefit for you. And there are so many other things that we choose to boast in. Some are seemingly innocent, maybe a personal accomplishment, something your kid does, a beautiful sunset. Others are far less innocent. They're like the embarrassment of a rival or the fall of an enemy or a sin we have successfully perpetrated, seemingly without consequence. The things we boast in reveal what our hearts are affixed to. I don't want my heart to be affixed to vengeance or vanity. Neither do you. I want my heart to be affixed to Christ, to boast in his cross, when I boast in him, I, I know that my heart, my heart is tied to him. My affections, my motivation, my desires are for the things of Christ. Why would Paul boast in the cross and not worldly things? He tells us in verse 14. He says that the world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. Why would he look at worldly success, worldly standards of good, and say, look at all these things. No, the world is dead to him. That old creation is gone. What does he mean ultimately by this phrase that he has crucified the world to himself? Well, Charles Spurgeon uh, can help explain this for us in words far better than I could come up with. Let me show you what Pastor Spurgeon said about this verse specifically. He said, what does Paul mean by this? He means that ever since he fell in love with Jesus Christ, he lost all love for the world. It seemed to him to be a poor, crucified, dying thing, and he turned away from it, just as you would from a criminal whom you might see hanging in chains and would desire to go anywhere rather than see the poor being. So Paul seemed to see the world on gallows, hung up there. There, he said, that is what I think of you and all your pomp and all your power and all your wealth and all your fame. You are on the gallows, a malefactor, nailed up, crucified. I would not give a fig for you. And now observe the other cross. 
There is Paul on that. The world thinks as little of Paul as Paul does of the world. The world says, oh, the harebrained Paul. He was once sensible, but he's gone mad upon the stubborn notion about the crucified one. The man is a fool, so the world crucifies him. And so it is with the world and the genuine Christian. Paul's done with that old creation. What matters most, according to verse 15, is the new creation. Both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. This is what matters most. Now, Paul uses the phrase new creation in two different ways in his writings. He speaks about it as a present reality for God's people, but also as a future to come. So in terms of this present tense new creation, think about 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. So that's the present tense reality. Faith in Christ changes me in the here and now. The world's crucified to me. I'm alive in Christ. But Paul also speaks of new creation as a future thing yet to come. Romans chapter 8, he uses it in this way. He speaks of the groaning of the old creation, describes this new day to come in Jesus Christ. So he looks at the here and now, and he looks at the then and there. And if we were to ask Paul, Paul, which one are you referring to in this passage? Are you saying that new creation is the now new creation or the future new creation? He would say, yep, that's it. Absolutely. This is what matters most. That here and now, my heart is gripped by Christ. My faith is in Him. Unshakable, unmovable, no matter what. And also, that I know one day He splits the sky and He comes back for His bride and He sets it all right once and for all. I long for that new creation, that distant country, that day's coming. But in the here and now, I hold to Christ and He holds to me. This is what matters most. What matters most in this world more than anything else, more than anything that's going to happen in the year 2020, is a new creation. It's Christ forming himself in us and preparing us for the end of days. What matters most in your life? We're going to spend some time with the writer of Ecclesiastes here in a few weeks, and he talks about this very matter. What is it that matters most? A lot of things matter in our lives. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us not everything is worthy of mattering. He uses this Hebrew word, hevel. You might recognize it as meaningless or vanity. What it means is mist or vapor. And what we do is we take things of the world that are nothing but mist or vapor and we say, this is my treasure. This is my joy. This is where my eternity is. This is what I believe in. This vapor is my life. But what the Word of God shows us over and over again is that our health fails, our work evaporates, our wealth is horrifically temporary and fragile, our days and the days of those we love are short. These things are hevel. They are vapor. So it's a delusional life that says all that matters is the vapor. Brother and sister, don't boast in those things. Don't live for those things. Christ is everything. He's everything for us. 
And so we live every day in the new creation we possess through faith in him. Let every detail of your life, down to the most mundane, ordinary things, show you to be a person who lives for what matters. I'm going to tie my heart to what matters most, the new creation Christ has worked in me and is working for me. So God's people, they persevere in faith. Second, they live for what matters most. And then third and finally, God's people follow the gospel standard by grace. They follow the gospel standard. They follow that standard by grace. So here in verse 16, as he comes to this, these closing words, uh, Paul prays that peace would come to all those who would follow this standard. May peace come to all those who follow this standard. What standard? What's he talking about? Well, again, if you were to look back at the end of verse 15, that standard is the new creation, who we are in Christ and what he is working for us in the future. Those who live by that gospel standard, faith in Christ alone, those are the ones who will experience the peace and the mercy of God. Now, it's uh, possible to be confused by the wording of verse 16. He, it seems as if he might be talking about two different groups. He says, may peace come to all those who follow this standard and mercy even to the Israel of God. It's worth taking a, a few sentences here to make sense of this verse. Uh, is Paul speaking to Gentiles in one phrase and then ethnic Israel in another phrase? I don't know how that could be possible here. If you think about all we've heard from Paul through the letter to the Galatians, he's not mounting an argument for ethnic Israel. He makes it very clear that God's people, the children of promise, Abraham's true heirs, are those whose faith is in Jesus Christ. So to make that argument throughout the letter and then come to verse 16, it would seem odd for Paul to, to go off message and to suddenly speak in glowing terms of those whose faith is not in Jesus Christ. Circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter. What matters is the new creation. The Israel of God are those whose faith is in Jesus Christ. So not two groups in verse 16. He's speaking to one group, those who trust in Christ. We get to verse 17. I think you can hear fatigue in Paul's voice. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The Judaizers want the Galatians to bear the mark of the Mosaic law on their flesh. But in contrast, Paul bears the marks of his resurrected Savior on his body. He doesn't mean he literally has scars in his hands and feet and side. That's not what Paul's referencing. And that's not what anyone should use this verse to reference. Metaphorically speaking, he has taken up his cross and he is following Christ. And his final words in verse 18 are a fitting benediction for the entire letter. He says, brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He's just told them, follow the gospel standard. And then he ends not by saying, you better do this or else. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Follow that gospel standard. Walk in that narrow way and let the grace of Jesus Christ get you through. This is not some new law that you've got to keep to perfection because you wouldn't if you tried. It's the grace of Christ that brings you here and all the way through to the end. God's people are not perfect in this life. We're saved by grace and held by grace. 
And Paul shows us the amazing riches of living by that gospel standard. When we live this way, we are recipients of God's peace, his mercy, and his grace. That's what God's people do. We live according to the gospel standard by the grace of Jesus Christ. So Paul has brought his letter to a close by reminding us of three defining characteristics of the people of God. God's people persevere in faith. God's people live for what matters most. And then finally, God's people follow the gospel standard by the grace of Jesus. These are not new ideas in the letter. They are themes we've seen repeatedly and in various ways throughout. Now, you'll remember that Paul wrote this letter to Christians who were struggling with their faith in Christ. How does this letter find you? Are you an embattled believer like the Galatians were? Would you characterize your faith in Jesus as strong or fragile? Have you lost sight of what matters most in life and as a result you're living for vapor? Have you abandoned the gospel standard for something substandard? This Christless way of living never satisfies. Haven't you found it to be void of power and peace? You know, perhaps if we were to ask people in your life, they would say you're a wonderful Christian man or woman, but you know the truth, you know how fragile your faith is, how convincing the tempter has been, and how little peace you possess. But here at the close of Galatians, Paul does not leave you without direction. He tells you how you can know the peace of God. Remember Paul's two key phrases from verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, it was what matters most is a new creation. In verse 16, it is uh, peace to all who live by this standard. New creation, live by this standard. This is what matters most. This is how peace comes. If we were to simplify the language, Paul's appeal is this. God's peace comes to those who live by faith in the Son of God. God's peace comes to those who live by faith in the Son of God. Paul is echoing his own words from Galatians 2.20, where he said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. He says the same thing in Galatians 3.11. He says, the righteous will live by faith. God's peace comes to those who live by faith in the Son of God. That's the appeal of Paul's letter in a single sentence. And so the question to you is, will you renew your commitment to live by faith in the Son of God? Now you can live by faith in a lot of different things. You can choose to live by believing the shifting morals of culture. You can choose to live by believing the lies of the enemy that seek to cripple you. You can seek to live by believing the lies of sin that ensnares you. But haven't you tried all of that? What has that done for you? How is your life better by living by faith in those things? This is the better way. To live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave his life for you. When we live by faith, we are equipped and prepared for anything the enemy brings. So should he attempt to make you doubt your salvation by accusing you of being a horrible Christian due to your sin and weakness, well, living by faith in the Son of God silences those accusations. 
you know that you're saved not by your works, but according to Ephesians 2.8, you're saved by grace through faith. The accuser is muzzled and your fears alleviated because you know you live by faith in Jesus Christ. Why would you choose the alternative and live under the accuser's deadly lies? The liar may take some hardship in your life and twist your thinking around it so that you see God as a perpetrator, as a doer of evil against you. And the liar whispers in your ear, it's time to walk away. But when you live by faith in the Son of God, you're like the singer in Psalm 13 who in one line voices his lament, his complaint to God, and in the final line proclaims, I will yet trust in your unfailing love. The adversary may try to silence your gospel voice. He may convince you it's just too risky to speak of Christ. You might bring harm on yourself. You might hurt your reputation. Better to just be nice without any mention of Jesus. But when you live by faith in the Son of God, you can stand against the adversary with the words of Paul from Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Will you renew your commitment to live by faith in the Son of God today? Will you relinquish the lies and the accusations of the enemy? Will you turn away from the false gospels that tickle your ears? Will you turn back to Jesus and live for what matters most? This will undoubtedly require you to crucify parts of yourself Parts of your worldly self that should have died long ago, but they seem to just keep squirming off of the cross. What is it? What's that part of your sin nature that tries to attack you over and over again? Will you crucify it again in the power of Jesus Christ? I know it can be painful because these can be very personal matters, but peace and mercy and grace await you when you die to your sin and live by faith in Christ. I read a quote the other day by one of my favorite authors that's been messing, me, messing with me. Um, A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, we want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. Now, to be sure, Christ's death alone is sufficient to save, but my sanctification requires me to die a thousand tiny deaths over and over again. I don't want to die. I don't like to die to my idols, but I must. I don't like dying to my name and my ego, but I must. I don't like dying to my identity in my work, but I must. I don't like dying to my bitterness and unforgiveness, but I must. And the peace, the mercy, and the grace that makes it possible is yours when you live by faith in the Son of God. Who are you? You are a child of promise by faith in Jesus Christ. And we close this letter with renewed strength because we know who we are and whose we are. Do you know whose you are, it's possible you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not living by faith in him. I have good news for you. You're not left out of this discussion. You need to understand the seriousness of your sin. Your sin separates you from God and you cannot deal with it sufficiently on your own. There's nothing you can do to close the gap that your sin creates between you and God. But God loves you, sinner that you are. And he's made a way for your sin and its penalty to be totally removed. In God's economy, sin requires 
death. And God permits you to have someone else die in your place for your sin. The catch is they have to be perfectly sinless. I can't die for your sin. Mother Teresa couldn't die for your sin. Billy Graham couldn't die for your sin. No one else, human, can die for your sin because we have sin of our own. And that's why God the Father sent God the Son. Jesus is God who became man. He took on flesh. He's born of a virgin. And since he's fully God and fully man, he lived a sinless life. He's the only one who qualifies to die for your sin. He's the sacrificial lamb of God, which means he is God's perfect and only sacrifice. So he gave his life. He died on the cross. And on the cross, he took all of God's wrath for all of your sin, and he atoned. He paid for your sin. He died on the cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead, which means every one of his promises are true. He loves you, and he promises to forgive you and give you eternal life if you will turn from your sin and trust entirely in him for your salvation. The peace and mercy and grace that we've spoken of today will be yours. You will be a new creation. So if you have questions and you want to talk more about trusting Christ as your Savior, then I, when the service is over, I want you to grab me or Pastor Steve, someone you know and trust, and let's have that conversation today. Don't put that new creation off another moment. And so this, my friends, is the end of the book of Galatians. Brothers and sisters, may you find peace and mercy as you follow this gospel standard. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, for your word to us, we give you praise. Thank you that in our faith crisis, you send this emergency help. Thank you for the power of your word to silence the accuser, his lies and his temptations, and instead to lift us in strength and perseverance by setting our faith on Jesus Christ. Lord, would you bring new commitment, new vitality to my brothers and sisters this morning as we once again set our eyes on you and commit to walk in your way. Help us to live by this standard. Thank you for grace that is abundant mercy that is necessary that we might know continued peace with you. God, I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, but they've heard the gospel today. They've heard what it is to be a new creation. Lord, rescue them. Open their eyes that they would believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word to us, the gift of Galatians. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's respond together by singing the testimony of a sinner saved by grace alone, through faith alone, who boasts in Jesus Christ alone. Let's stand together and sing, hallelujah, all we have is Christ. was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life 
had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own the rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you As I ran, my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my place, you bore the Reserve for me now all I know is grace Hallelujah All I have is Christ Hallelujah Jesus is my So all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you Sing that again. choose. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Forever be my only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my. powerful message. I have the uh, privilege of hearing the sermon twice on Sundays, and uh, the second time it impacted me just as much as the first time. Christ is my defense. Christ is my identity. If I live by that, 
it affects the way I think, affects my plans, even affects my plans when they are tossed aside. So thankful to worship with you this morning. As we close the book of Galatians, hear this word from the beginning of Galatians. It says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever.